Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week, our return guest, is A.B. Stoddard. It's always great to have you, A.B. Welcome. We will begin with uh, the, uh, the real tightrope that the Democrats are walking. It is, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. It seems that they have an agreement to extend uh, the government funding, so to avoid a government shutdown, but everything else is very much up in the air. And Bill Galston, I'm going to start with you this week. Usually I, I let you back clean up. Um, and, and, you know, make some magisterial comments about the state of the world. Well, I'm going to start with you <laughs> um, <laughs> with, with one, you know, a couple of observations. So a number of Democrats and Democratic-leaning commentators are making the point um, that progressives um, are asking for too much, that uh, they are from safe seats and the moderates are not, uh, and that furthermore, um, if there is just so much in this reconciliation bill that they have linked to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there's so much in it that they have not at all made the case to the American people that this is worth passing in its current form. The messaging has all been about numbers. You know, it's either 3.5 trillion is too much or it's not enough, but there hasn't been anything about the substance. I can't disagree with you, Mona. Uh, it is the case that when survey researchers break down the reconciliation bill into its parts and then present the, the respondents with the parts one by one, almost all of them are very popular. However, uh, the Democratic Party has done a terrible job of explaining to any voter or citizen what is actually in the bill or why they should vote for it. Uh, and uh, it has become a numbers game. It's a numbers game, by the way, that the progressives are bound to lose. And the Speaker of the House has conceded publicly that the $3.5 trillion price tag will be significantly reduced uh, pursuant to her pledge to put nothing on the House floor that doesn't have the support of 51 Democratic, 50 Democratic senators plus the vice president. A memo made public today and actually given to the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, one of the alleged holdouts, uh, on July 28th, uh, made it clear that his initial offer is 1.5 trillion. Uh, and the other known holdout, Kirsten Cinema, may not be even that forthcoming. Uh, so there is a lot of negotiating back and forth between the House Democrats and Senate Democrats that will have to precede any bill in the House, any reconciliation bill that is consistent with Speaker Pelosi's pledge. 
Um, A.B., let's go back in history, way, 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 way back to, well, August. Um, August 10th, <laughs> um, the, um, the Senate passed the bipartisan infrastructure deal with 19 Republican senators voting aye, including uh, the minority leader. Um, that was the moment when it seems, then you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, if, if Speaker Pelosi, you know, in consultation with the president had said, let's rush this to the House floor and pass it, it would have passed. And they would have also gotten a fair number of votes from the Republican House members. Um, but in the intervening six weeks, or a little more than that, um, the Republicans have decided to whip against, that is, um, McCarthy has decided to whip against the infrastructure bill. Um, and of course, because it was linked to this huge uh, reconciliation bill, there's now considerably less enthusiasm among Republicans. And in any case, because of the game of chicken that the Democrats are playing with themselves, uh, the whole thing could go down in flames. Now, do you have an explanation for why these experienced, um, um, uh, shall we say, wise, experienced leaders, Pelosi and Biden and Schumer, who have been around for decades, um, didn't, you know, didn't handle this more deftly? Well, I, I've given the administration credit all year for quieting or keeping quiet the progressive, uh, you know, energized left flank of their party that believed that they delivered um, without Donald Trump's help, you know, two Senate runoff seats in Georgia, thereby handing the majority to the Democrats and that they had won this uh, triumphant election uh, by energizing their base. And they had all of these promises to keep. Uh, and and that, the, that the administration thought, you know, the math dictates the reality, but until we get to the mat, let's just keep these people happy. Bernie Sanders literally did not start jabbering about any of this stuff until three weeks ago around. He has been a lawyer, loyal soldier, um, chairman of the budget committee, you know, one of the leaders involved um, and um, on the team. And this, the problem with the August 10th vote is that at that time, even before that time, the progressives were always um, assured that this reconciliation package was as important, the human infrastructure, as the physical infrastructure that passed the, the bill of energy and transportation projects that garnered this terrific bipartisan support. And so um, they were in this trap of the two-track promise that they were going to be passed simultaneously it was clear that um, that the leaders that you you know that you um, just uh, praised for their experience, <laughs> their decades and decades in the trenches, or at least I mentioned their experience. I'm not sure if it was praise. <laughs> okay, true, um, but but you credited them with, with having experience. They, they've known this, and I and I and I really thought that they. Um, you know, all along have known that they obviously were not going to tank a bird in hand, a bill that was ready to be signed, that 70% of the American public supports, that had, you know, that much Republican support. And so um, what they were trying to do was, you know, 
take a standalone vote in which they hope to get between 20 and upwards of 40. That sounds very pie in the sky, but I know for a fact that they were hoping uh, that this bipartisan coalition of Republican senators leaning on the House Republicans, you know, the business groups that, that and the problem solvers Republicans that they could get between you know, 25 and, and, and 40, a good buffer of Republican support. And that would um, that would detach them from this from this problem of of the bleeding on the progressive side. So that's not how it turned out. Now they don't know um, when they're going to hold this vote. Um, and they're, um, I believe, still going to proceed to disappoint the progressives with a much smaller package that meets Joe Manchin's top line of $1.5 And they will pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill and they will not breach the debt ceiling or any of that. Uh, but I think they were trying to do this dance as long as they could um, and, and to save the acrimony and the infighting for the bitter end. They've known about Joe Manchin's top line all along. Uh, they simply wanted the explosion um, to start later. Hmm. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to go to you, Damon. Um, maybe it's because I've changed and I no longer feel as a, you know, interpret things through the lens of being a partisan for the Republican side, which I was for decades and I no longer am. So maybe that's part of it. But I had the sense in the past that the Democrats were a lot better at messaging. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about failing to sell the reconciliation bill on the content. Um, but, you know, in the old days, like when they were going after Newt Gingrich, I mean, he was the, the Grinch who stole Christmas and he was going to cut off, you know, children's nutrition. And they were they were always portraying Republicans as the, you know, friends of the rich and so on. And, and Noah Smith, a blogger I'm fond of, you know, has pointed out that just, for example, leaving aside reconciliation, just the infrastructure bill by itself um, has, you know, was, was dis well, he, he points out that it has, you know, all kinds of progressive, uh, many progressive features. It's got, you know, something like a hundred billion dollars for various kinds of public transit. Um, it has uh, money for the power grid. It has um, upgrading water infrastructure, including replacing all of the lead pipes in the country, which is incredibly important for the uh, mental health and development of, of children. Um, it has climate change mitigation, $47 billion for cybersecurity and climate change mitigation, toxic waste, all kinds of things that the um, Democrats could be saying, look what we did. And uh, instead, I heard uh, just this morning, I was listening to a podcast, New York Times podcast, featuring Pramila Jayapal, who heads the uh, Progressive Caucus the Democrats in the House, and she dismissed this entire huge bill as money for roads. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, um, just on the narrow question of messaging, um, I, from my regal position here in the center, apart from all partisanship, where I'd like to pretend I situate myself, um, <laughs> I, I, I have always thought that the Republicans are much better at these kind of uh, taglines than Democrats are. Democrats actually care about policy, and they often get into the weeds of, of policy and don't 
really put their uh, the, their their greatest uh, mental powers to the marketing side of things. Uh, in some ways, that's very admirable. Um, as an academic, uh, in my past, I can appreciate you know being a, a hard nosed intellectual and digging into the numbers. On the other hand. You know, they might have, progressives might have said mean things about Newt Gingrich back in the day, but it was Newt Gingrich who came up with, quote, contract with America and kill the death tax. I mean, Republicans are the ones who are who are very, very good at coming up with these little pithy statements that sort of distort and caricature the, the policy, but give it a framing that works for them. So I'm not surprised that the Democrats have been sort of stumbling around over this. Uh, you know, the most of the, the people on the left side want to pass this bill because they care about these issues and think the country needs these things done. They don't particularly want to think about how am I going to sell this in Iowa? Now, I think that's unfortunate because if you can sell it in Iowa, you win more seats the next time and can do even more things you want to do that are good for the country. But say la vie, that is where we are. Um, and then the other part of your, your question uh, just about uh, the kind of the mess of the whole thing. I mean, I don't really know what to say about it because I am not a progressive Democrat. All I can say is that in observing it, we are watching a very interesting sort of social scientific experiment here. In the New Deal and in the Great Society, which is sort of the model for the progressives and what they're trying to do here, the, the cart was not before the horse, meaning the president and his party won not just the White House by massive margins, but won both houses of Congress in most cases right away, some cases two years later, by super majorities. And then they took that as a mandate to enact a whole long list of things for the progressive cause. Right now, we're in a completely reversed situation where in effect, what progressives are saying is, yes, we barely hold both houses of Congress, but we're going to try to pass this new New Deal or greater society. And that very process will allow us, progressive Democrats, to create more progressive Democrats so that later we can do even more progressive Democratic stuff later. It's a kind of leap of faith that in doing this stuff, They'll create support for the stuff they just did, but that at the moment, public opinion doesn't really support. It's it's really an incredibly risky gamble, uh, politically speaking. And my instincts tell me it, it isn't going to work, uh, that it's actually handling handing Republicans uh, a, a big old baseball bat to whip their butts uh, next year in the midterms. But, uh, you know, we will see. I, I really, uh, you know, I've been surprised enough over recent years about developments in our politics to sort of want to stand back and just watch it unfold at this point, uh, because it is uh, quite an unusual sequence of events, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Linda, the um, the Democrats, you know, I agree with um, with Damon that the, and maybe others made this point too, A.B. and, and Bill, that, um, you know, the Democrats really have these goals uh, close to their hearts. They desperately want to achieve them legislatively. Um, and they felt that way about Obamacare. 
Um, they felt that way strongly enough that they were willing to lose control of the House of Representatives to achieve it. And they did. Um, they, they, by hook or by crook and various legislative maneuvers and some not so pretty, they finally passed it. Um, and they did lose control of, of the uh, House in the next uh, midterm. I'm kind. So here's my my view. So leaving aside the whole question of whether any of this is good policy, you know, I tend to think that some of the things in the infrastructure bill are good. I even like some of the things in the reconciliation package, though I think it's way too big. But leaving all that aside, um, isn't it isn't it worrisome that the Democrats might be saying to themselves, you know what, if we don't if we if we get this huge you know new spending. It's worth it if we lose control of the House. Um, when the, the the Republicans that they'd be handing power to, you know, are the 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 new authoritarians, the the party that is enthralled to Donald Trump and that you know would be make Kevin McCarthy speaker. So that's a little worrisome, right? Yes, it is. Uh, and I think you you absolutely anticipated uh, a point that I was going to make, which is that when the Democrats do this, when they decide to go all in, pass legislation only with Democratic votes, uh, do not in any way attempt to reach some sort of consensus, ultimately it comes back to bite them, as it did, as you rightly said, uh, when uh, we had the 2010 uh, changeover of the House uh, from Democratic to Republican. You know, it's been clear to me most of my adult life anyway that progressives, uh, what we used to call liberals, have very poor understanding of basic economics. They also seem to have, a, at least this group uh, in of progressives in the House of Representatives, seem to have a very poor understanding of basic politics. Yes, they defeated uh, Donald Trump in the last election, but that was because, um, you know, many people who don't necessarily agree with the progressive agenda voted for Joe Biden uh, as someone that would at least uh, be a legitimate president that would not try to undo democratic norms. So now we have a situation where uh, the Democrats, who seem to be really only on the same page on one thing, and that is being anti-Trump, uh, have um, a basic problem with the large swath of American voters. Uh, the voters in the last election did not vote for the Jayapal agenda. They are not fans of AOC uh, or Congresswoman uh, Omar, uh, they um, they do not particularly want some of the things that the progressives uh, want uh, because number one, too expensive, and number two, you know they may not actually agree with some of the policies. So you know they're forcing um, this showdown. Uh, first of all, I think they're not they're not going to succeed. Um, they're not going to get this big package, and so they're going to hand uh, the president a defeat. Uh, if in fact they hold up infrastructure as a result of it, uh, as a result of that, they're also going to tick off the American public. And I think we will see the consequences next year. But worse than that, we could see the consequences in 2024. Um, I really am concerned that uh, President 
President Biden is losing support. Um, everybody seemed to believe that he was going to be the competent president, that he was going to uh, get America back to normal. Well, it hasn't quite turned out that way. I mean, he's done some good things, but, you know, he's losing support uh, over Afghanistan, uh, even over handling uh, of the pandemic. So uh, I just think this is, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a Marxist strategy. Let's make things so terrible that, uh, you know, maybe uh, then we'll have a uprising of the working class. Well, it's never worked that way. In the oh, what did they States. call They had a term for that. It was like increasing the contradictions or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's politically in a country like the United States, it has never worked that way. And so I think they're basically... Um, out to lunch, not not just on the economics of this bill, but on the politics of it. Bill, did you have something to add? I think it's very important to understand uh, that a large number of House Democrats expect to lose their majority in November of 2022, whatever they do, just based on history. Uh, and so many of them, many of them reason that we might as well do something big <laughs> in return for. Uh, a pretty li pretty likely loss. Second, before we get carried away with dismal prognostications about 2024, a couple of a couple of historical data points. Uh, the House Democrats got wiped out in 1994 after Bill Clinton's first two years, and he came back uh, to win the presidency handsomely in 1996. Uh, History repeated itself in 2010, uh, and Barack Obama still managed to win a four-point victory in 2012. So there's no necessary relationship between what happens in the midterm and what happens in the next general election, or between the president's job approval ratings in the fall of his first year and how American how Americans are thinking about him three years later. So let's cool our jets a little bit. Mm, okay. Um, Just quickly respond to that. Yeah, please do. Uh, yes, Joe Biden is no Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. Um, they were extraordinarily talented politicians, and Biden has not shown himself, at least recently, uh, to be that kind of candidate. Uh, people voted against Trump as much as they voted for uh, Biden. So, A.B., I want to bring you back in here on the whole question of these enormous bills, um, these these CRs or, you know, for, for non-nerds, uh, continuing resolutions. You know, they're supposed to pass 13 appropriations bills every year. They're supposed to have hearings. They're supposed to have consideration of various policies and, you know, but they've stopped doing all of that and they have these enormous bills and part of you know part of the reason that they have to throw everything into these enormous packages is the filibuster right because if you need um 60 votes to pass ordinary legislation um you have to use the cr route uh, not the cr excuse me but the reconciliation route to achieve your priorities and that is a is a crazy um, outcome, isn't it? It is. Um, I think that uh, people are weighing, though, what what is worse to get rid of the legislative filibuster, or to uh, just use reconciliation to pass this 
domestic uh, agenda, which is very broad and very sweeping and very expensive. Um, but it can be done without breaking the legislative filibuster. So um, that's a lot of that. That's a subject of internal debate, obviously, within the party. Uh, and um, it uh, it is a it's a big, ugly process, but I do want to distinguish between a continuing resolution that's in these things that pass in this week of the end of the fiscal year to keep the government operating and from shutting down and cutting off checks to the troops and seniors and everything. Both parties do that. No one appropriates uh, in a proper, regular order and procedure anymore. That's terrible, but that's our reality. Um, and they just, um, you know... The, 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 the whole debt limit and CR process is just baked into whoever, you know, of the process in Congress now, whoever um, is, is leading the, 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 you know, the chambers and the majority. So that's, that's sort of separate from the fact that they are trying to jam through this massive uh, transformative social sa safety redesign um, on, on a 50 vote tie vote that is broken by the vice president of their party. Uh, again, I don't know. I think, I think the outcome, though, uh, for the Democrats, should they succeed and they prevail, um, and and patch over these fights and pull something off, um, the, the outcome really depends politically. Um, and I think they're definitely going to lose the midterms no matter what. Just to, it's just whether you know it's a three seat margin or a thirty seat margin of the win for Republicans. But the outcome politically of of this reconciliation push. And this huge, these, these huge pieces of legislation, and all this spending, um, is whether or not they're popular. And no one will remember how they passed, um, and no one will care. And the, and the voters think both parties, when they're in charge, are partisan, and they don't follow regular order, and they, you know, crush the minority, and they don't play by the, you know, the right rules, and they're all hypocrites. I think that the Democrats, and I agree with everything everyone has said about the popularity and the political risk of these of these policies, um, apart from the process is that the, the, the problem for the Democrats is they already see polling showing that the COVID relief that they passed that was popular in polling has not really been felt and appreciated by the voters, that people are getting checks right. that, you know, where they come from. And so if you're not going to get credit for that, um, the, the voters might right. not and, and the social safety net has been reordered next year. Yeah, and they, they are relying, it seems, on these, you know, um, you know, issue polls, which are pretty useless because so much depends upon how they're framed. You know, you can frame it any old way. You know, some Democrats are saying that we should, you know, we should run up, you know, $10 trillion in debt to, uh, you know, help out black farmers. Do you like this policy or not? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it just, and then as you say, people can tell a pollster, yes, I'm in broadly in favor of X policy without really understanding it. And, you know, it's I, I don't think you should I don't think that you should um, uh, base your 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 whole party's political health on on the hope that something is popular based on a poll. Um, but anyway, uh, let, let me just ask, does anybody want to comment on what Mitch McConnell did? Um, so there was this sort of technical matter of raising the debt ceiling. Other countries don't have debt ceilings. We probably shouldn't either, but we do. And it requires the Congress to permit the Treasury to borrow. And um, the, the Republicans are making this unbelievably, in my judgment, 
disingenuous argument that <laughs> this is not their problem, that that if the Democrats want to raise it, the Democrats have the votes, they control all three red, they should raise the debt ceiling. And, you know, there are a lot of people who think this is really playing Russian roulette with the health of the U.S. economy, um, especially since, of course, it doesn't it, it, they, the Republicans are saying, well, it's for the it's for the Democrats big spending plans, but it's not. It's for the spending that's already been undertaken. Anybody want to comment? <laughs> open, the floor is open. I think you've done a pretty good job of commenting already. Mona, I know. But, I, but I, I guess I, I'm so shy, you know? you know? You know, suffice it to say that, you know, uh, during the Trump administration, Democrats helped pass increases in the debt ceiling, not one, not two, but three times. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make them saints, uh, but it does make them more honorable than Mitch McConnell in this regard. Yeah, lately. I mean, I remember talking last week about how Barack Obama once voted against, for the, in exactly, making exactly the same dubious argument about. I, the, I, I didn't say that this was true <laughs> for all of past history, but just the past administration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's, um, let's turn now uh, to our other topic, which is um, this really fantastic piece by Robert Kagan, our constitutional crisis is already here. Um, this is one of those essays that, you know, well, so I remember very well where uh, that it, it sort of appeared online last Thursday after we had recorded Beg to Differ. I began to read it. And um, as sometimes happens when I start reading something, I get distracted and I go do something else and I come back to it. Not this time. I just, I just, my eyes were glued to the screen and I just kept reading and reading. And, you know, by, by the end, I was pretty darn depressed. But uh, it's an important piece. It's a brilliant um, sort of distillation, I think, of where we are. I will, um, I will read the first paragraph, the first sentence, rather, because it, <clears throat> presented it in a really arresting fashion. Quote, the United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority, and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves. Um, Damon, I'm going to start with you. You could almost say this was a subtweet of Ross Douthat, who has been, who's been taking the the um, position over the last couple of years that worries about Donald Trump's uh, would be authoritarianism are overblown. That he's just too incompetent, lazy, and silly um, to pull anything off, and therefore um, we really don't need to all hyperventilate about his influence. Yeah, I mean, I I feel bad. I really like Ross Douthat, both personally, but even more so as a pundit. I I think I, I've, I do I've, too. I, I do think too. I think I've highlighted you know for my highlight of the week on this podcast probably half a dozen times columns that he's written since we started. Um, I you know on uh, whenever he's in the paper, it's the first thing I read, and I don't always agree with him, but he's usually a very a very bracing challenge to where I'm coming from and I value his writing but on this topic um, you know through the Trump years I found him to be a useful 
voice in the very wide and uh, crowded public square debating Trump, the danger that he poses. It was useful having a very smart person creating, you know, making very uh, literate erudite arguments, making the position that you summarized that, that, yes, Trump is terrible in all kinds of ways. I do not like Trump. I do not approve of Trump, which he made very, very clear at all points. However, the danger isn't that he's going to launch a coup and successfully uh, uh, follow through on it because all the evidence points to the fact that he's a, a total moron and doesn't have the first indication, not the slightest understanding of how to actually exercise power. And so at every stage when he sort of tries to go beyond the bounds of the rule of law, he gets kind of smacked down and, uh, you know, members of the administrative state or the bureaucracy just sort of, you know, say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then they leave and they roll their eyes. They slow walk it. He forgets. And six months later, he asks, why didn't we do that? And they lie and say, we did. And he's fooled and ha ha. Now, I do think, again, while Trump was president, there were many moments where that message was a useful reminder of Trump's incompetence. However, I do not believe that that is um, a, a suitable response to what we might be facing in 2024, because Trump does not need to be competent in that way to create a tremendous mess in this country. All he needs is the singular political talent that he indisputably does possess, which is to be a demagogue. And really, Robert Kagan deserves a lot of credit. He wrote a column in the Washington Post, I believe, in February of 2016, so quite early, long before he had, he had sewn up the nomination, in which he called him what he was then, the, our foremost demagogue charlatan in American history, the greatest in, of all time. And that is what he still is. And all he needs to potentially throw the 2024 electoral count into chaos is simply to repeat what he tried in 2020 with a few things being changed, namely that a lot of the people at the state level and potentially in Congress who stood against his attempt to reverse the election results to have them actually on his side this time. Now, does that mean he actually will, you know, get, you know, Biden wins or Harris wins and uh, Trump uh, clearly loses by, say, now maybe 10 million votes rather than seven? He does that. Does that mean Biden will end up leaving the White House and Trump will end up there instead? No, probably not. I really don't see how that could be could succeed. But what Kagan is talking about is instead, again, a kind of total civic chaos throughout the country where some states uh, refuse to certify the electors uh, that, the, that the math shows they ought to and instead certify another slate that actually is pro-Trump. Then Congress has to decide which of the two slates they're going to actually uh, take seriously. We had over 100 Republicans in the House who were willing to entertain this nonsense the last time. What's going to happen after all of these challenges from the Trumpian right, uh, some of which will be successful?
successful and there are more people like that in Congress, the result could be a much, much bigger mess, a kind of January 6th that goes on for days or weeks. And who knows where that would lead? That's my case for taking this piece very, very seriously. And uh, I hope that uh, I hope everyone will read it and really take it to heart. Now, when it comes to the question of exactly how we prevent this, I'll leave that to others to weigh in on. Um, I think the piece doesn't have very much there. And I think the sad, scary truth is that's because it's not that clear. I mean, there are uh, there are legislative paths that we can take. I don't think they're that likely to actually come off. But even if they did, how do you prevent a problem like Donald Trump? Uh, we've been dealing with that problem now for years, and we still don't have a really locked down solid answer to that question. Um, Linda, uh, it strikes me that the people who um, minimize the threat from Trump uh, say, well, look, you know, the the guardrails held, right? You had some members of his own administration, uh, like leading uh, lawyers at the Justice Department, who, when he pressured them to um, decertify the results in uh in Georgia and elsewhere said that if he if he if he wanted the Justice Department to do such a thing or if he went forward with his crazy plan to elevate Jeffrey Clark to the uh, top position as attorney general and so forth, that they would resign en masse, kind of a Saturday night massacre on steroids. Um, and um, and so they, you know, they did the right thing. And of course, Brad Raffensperger did the right thing. And Aaron von Legeveld, who was, a, you know, just a lowly 40-year-old lawyer who was serving on the canvassing board in Michigan, but who sort of stood up on his hind legs and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the wrong thing. I'm not going to lie, you know. And uh, of course, he's, okay, so all, my point is that the people who minimize Trump's threat say, well, see, all those people are out there and they will do the same thing again. What they, what they failed to take account of is that they are all being punished. Everybody who voted to uh, impeach Donald Trump has pretty much everybody has been censured by their local Republican Party. Um, Brad Raffensperger has a, a challenger, a, a sitting congressman, is going to try to replace him as Secretary of State. Trump is endorsing Secretary of State candidates in lots of other swing states. Um, Aaron von Langefeld was forced to resign. Um, people have had threats against their lives. Um, so for somebody who's incompetent, as, as Dane was saying, he's competent at being a demagogue and he's competent at threatening people and driving out those who don't support him uh, completely. And the, the Republican Party has shown itself to be a cult now, willing to follow their authoritarian leader. That's where we're headed. Don't you agree? I or absolutely do you not agree. <laughs> no, I absolutely. Mona, you know I agree. <laughs> not always. Yeah. Sometimes we beg to differ. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I look back at one of the most thoughtful pieces I think written uh, on this subject, uh, which, which uh, was written by one of uh, our colleagues here, and that's Damon Linker, who wrote "The Intellectual Right Contemplates an American Caesar" mm -hmm. uh, in the week, and that was uh, back in July. Um, in fact, what is 
clearly happening is that there is now a new movement among conservatives led by the Claremont Institute, but there are plenty of other uh, players as well, um, basically to contemplate that in order to preserve uh, their idea of what the founders wanted, we may have to just totally abandon uh, the structure that the founders put in place through the Constitution uh, and um, and move to autocratic rule. I mean, they clearly have elevated um, the preservation of their idea of American culture, uh, the preservation of, um, you know, what they see as the important uh, freedoms uh, of the American public, the freedom not to be masked during a pandemic, the freedom not to get uh, vaccinated uh, during a pandemic. Um, and, you know, my fear is, you know, if, if, if the election is an overwhelming victory for the Democrat uh, in 2024, whether that be Biden or someone else, um, there probably is less uh, of uh, an issue, uh, particularly if there are even bigger victories in the toss-up states, uh, which are just, you know, few in number. Most, most of the country is either solidly red or solidly blue. Um, but what if the election is a lot closer than it was uh, between Biden and Trump? There, now that you have in place, the Republicans have been very, very clever and very um, engaging in a lot of foresight to begin to change state laws and state in the way in which um, the uh, legislature has a role to play uh, in the selection of electors. And that's my fear, is that you don't, you know, if it's a tight election and you don't have a huge, overwhelming victory by one side or another, uh, it won't take that much uh, to accomplish uh, what their aims are. And and I would argue that groups like the Claremont Institute, which uh, I think are growing in influence, um, could play um, a huge role in undoing uh, the last 200 years of history of this country and what we think of as our democratic republic. Uh, and I am very worried by it. I, you know, I don't know that I quite see that we're going to see armed revolution and fighting in the streets. Um, I do think uh, that we're going to see uh, a lot of maneuvering in state legislatures to try to subvert the will of the people in those states where you may have, you know, a popular election and a Democrat wins, but the state is still controlled by uh, Republicans in in their um, in their legislature. So I, I'm very worried. Um, A.B., so after the Arizona fraudulent audit uh, that was paid for entirely by big Republican donors, um, did not find fraud and, in fact, found that Biden had won by more than the tally that came out uh, after the election by a few hundred votes. Um we had an example of of what the, of the you know Alice in Wonderland quality that has now overtaken American life, because Trump goes out to a rally and says the Arizona audit proved I won, and it is just up is down, hot is cold, left is right, and you've got these screaming fans saying you know they believe it, and you've got what. I don't know, what are the statistics? Something like 70% of Republicans believe his lie about the election being um, stolen. Um, it's it's really hard to have a sense of having your feet under you um, at, 
at this moment. And when people's attachment or, or when, when we are so post-truth, um, it's, it's hard to be sanguine um, about what the, the dark possibilities can be. It, it's, you are right. I mean, there's, there's just nothing. You can't use the word lie to describe what Trump did on Saturday night in Georgia to tell his audience something they knew wasn't true. And then it was met with rapturous applause because they almost kind of get off on him lying, I, it, you know, just making his own reality that would please them as well. I, I like Damon, I urge everybody. I am literally begging people to read every word of Kagan's piece. Damon talked about what Kagan goes through in terms of what happens with the um, the refusal to, to certify slates of electors, choosing their own. Um, you went through how anyone who's going to be an honest broker in this process has lost their job, has had their lives threatened, and has been run out of this business. And, and then, of course, Linda went through just how these new laws and these swing states are being cooked up to enable state legislatures to... to, to to run a partisan process and, 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 you know, employ people to steal the, you know, just take out, take baskets of votes. They know that they won't like and throw them right out, do whatever they want. Um, there is certainly a scenario in which you can see that the breakdown of trust leads to violence. That's the, it's very simple. Um, the way that Kagan lays it out. He also does not only an assessment that's very, that's, that's, so dead on um, about the past and present of the Republican Party in the last five years, but talks about what will happen to them in this coming process, um, what they will do to roll over for Trump in a second term, let him you know, run an authoritarian uh, government and, and change our system forever. Uh, it's really worth spending time uh, with the details he lays out. I absolutely think that Trump can win legitimately in 2024. Uh, and people start to really need to start talking about that and processing that. Uh, but certainly they are building a system that will not be um, the Keystone cops uh, and a bunch of rookies and a bunch of goofballs, um, you know, drunk with hair dye pouring down their cheeks talking about Venezuelans next time. It will be perfected by people in all these states, in all these structures, ready to cheat. Uh, because they believe that they must um, to save the republic. That they're saving democracy. They believe yeah. they're the ones who are saving democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and they will also have intellectual support, as Linda points out, from from the types like um, uh, Eastman. You know, a, a member of the Federalist Society uh, in good standing. I think he's still a member, although I think he's no longer. He was quietly moved out of his post as the leader of one of their practice groups. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he, he uh, was a, um, a professor at a law school um, and, and devised a plan, six-point plan, uh, to subvert the Constitution and, and, and have uh, Pence declare Trump the winner. Um, and, and there are plenty of other intellectuals lined up behind him um, who are also ready to provide cover for this kind of thing. Um, I thought one of um, there's so many. I I couldn't agree more, Ab, about the value of this piece. Um, 
one of the points that I thought was was exactly right was that he he talks about how you know demagogues are not new, uh, you know, appealing to people's lower instincts is not new. But he wrote this: what makes the Trump movement historically unique is not its passions and paranoias. It is the fact that for millions of Americans, Trump himself is the response to their fears and resentments. This is a stronger bond between leader and followers than anything seen before in U.S. political movements. And then he says a little later, there was a time when political analysts wondered what would happen when Trump failed to deliver for his constituents. But the most important thing Trump delivers is himself. And I think that is so true. I remember thinking back in 2017, gee, you know, when he started to go after um, uh, uh, Sessions, you know, for failing to, uh, uh, for, for agreeing to recuse himself. And I thought, well, Sessions, he's he's held in high regard by a lot of these conservatives. Perhaps this will wise them up. Well, of course not. Sessions became public enemy. He was now Trotsky. He had to be destroyed uh, because it's a cult. It's a, pers- it's a cult of personality. Um, and um, so, let, Bill, let me ask you to comment on another point um, that, that Kagan made, <clears throat> which is he's talking about the Democrats. Um, and and he says that he thinks there's a tendency on the part of some Democrats not to see this clearly, that, that for them, both it's politically convenient and also maybe they believe it, that there really isn't that much of a distinction between Trumpism and ordinary Republicanism, that uh, they're, they're still fighting the same old enemy. That may be true for some, uh, but I think some other things are, are going on. Uh, first of all, for better or for worse, Democrats are unwilling to give up the agenda, the issues agenda that they've been formulating for the past decade and subordinate it and everything else to the single task of fighting fighting Trump. Uh, and historically, that may turn out to be a colossal error. Uh, but right now, as we've seen during the first half hour of this discussion, that's not where their focus is, although arguably it's where their focus should be. But I've been thinking very hard about this and very personally, and I can report that this is the first time I think I have ever viscerally understood the sentiments of so many German Jews in the 1930s. Their imaginations were simply not equal to the possibility of the worst case. Uh, In their heads, maybe they imagined it, but in their hearts, they simply couldn't get there. They couldn't get themselves to believe that something so horrible could possibly happen. Uh, And I don't exclude myself from those sentiments. Analytically, uh, I can find little fault with Kagan's argument, but emotionally, I'm resisting it. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of for a lot of Democrats, some version of that is the truth. A few other a, a few other random observations. Uh, there's an old saying that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. 
Uh, and I repeat that saying to myself at least once a day. And <laughs> after I read Kagan's article, maybe once an hour, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know whether he's being an alarmist or a realist, but it almost doesn't matter. Whatever probability I attach to the outcome he describes, uh, that probability, the, uh, the awfulness of the outcome means that I have to take his argument seriously. And more than that, I have to do more than worry about it. I have to ask myself the old question, what is to be done? Yeah. And I think we all have the same responsibility to think about that practically and to do what we can in cooperation and concert with others of like mind to reduce the odds that uh, the worst case will happen. That means identifying the greatest threats. It means focusing not so much on barriers to voting, which I'm convinced uh, is the least important dimension of the plan. It means focusing much more on counting the vote once it is cast. It means, as, as Linda pointed out correctly, focusing on the way in which the legislative authority, which on the face of it is guaranteed by the Constitution, might be deployed against democratic majorities in, in various states. It means focusing on the very dangerous ambiguities of the Electoral Count Act, which we've discussed previously on this program. It means getting serious about uh, doing more than wringing our hands, but actually trying to figure out what can be done, if not by us personally, by groups, by lawyers, by leaders, uh, whom we can choose to support in a more than notional way. So that's where I am. Uh, and, you know, I don't, for that, I don't need to situate myself on the continuum between Russ Douthat uh, and, and Bob Kagan, uh, because uh, in the same way that uh, if the probability of an accident at a nuclear plant is rather low, but the consequences of an accident are unimaginable, well, you do what you can to eliminate the possibility of the accident. You know, it's funny you should mention that because uh, in introducing this, I was going to make the comparison to the way many Democrats and some Republicans feel about climate change, right? They, they feel a sense of urgency about taking immediate steps to ward off a danger that is, um, that is, you know, maybe catastrophic, it may be slightly less than catastrophic, it may be very bad, um, but they're not sure. But that uncertainty goads them into a sense of greater urgency. In this instance, um, we don't know whether it's going to be just very bad or possibly catastrophic. And I think similar amounts of urgency are called for, but they don't seem to be forthcoming. But I, I, I love the way you put it, though, Bill. I mean, that, that we really all have to think harder about what each of us is doing to, um, to respond to this perceived threat. Um, okay, 
Let us now turn to our highlights or lowlights of the week. Linda, I'm going to start with you. Well, this isn't uh, an opinion piece, and it's not uh, particularly a political piece, but I was just stunned by a piece that appeared in the Washington uh, Post this week. It was called Two Kids, a Loaded Gun, and the Man Who Left a Four-Year-Old to Die. It is the story of a young girl named Iona Hinton, who was four years old, and a relative of hers who ended up getting a hold of an illegal gun that uh, was in a drawer, and uh, she ended up shot and, as of now, is more or less a quadriplegic. Um, I, I wasn't just stunned by the details of this horrible event and the little girl, but at the end of the story, they talk about what happened uh, to the man who owned that gun and left it available for these children uh, to be able to get and to inflict this terrible harm. Um, and he is a man who's had two previous, or maybe it was three previous uh, gun uh, charges against him. Uh, he basically got off on those gun charges. And even in this instance in which this four-year-old, who, by the way, uh, he, he came in uh, while she was bleeding on the floor, grabbed the gun, didn't call uh, 911, didn't do anything, but made sure that he got rid of that gun so that he not be charged. But the way in which he was treated by the judicial system, which was basically a slap on the wrist. And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, reforming our laws to uh, not punish people uh, severely, but then you have to think about the victims of the crimes that some of these people commit. And while he didn't pull the trigger himself, he certainly put um, that gun in the place where he could do just incalculable harm uh, to a family. So I recommend that article. Thank you. A.B.? Uh, I want to um, keep on the theme of the constitutional order. <laughs> and um, I want to highlight uh, just the serious guts of Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Um, she, uh, you know, uh, with every action and every uh, set of remarks she's made this year has made it clear she is willing to lose her job um, over her separation from the Republican Party over Trump and over uh, one-sixth denial and everything else. But yesterday uh, in the House, in a committee hearing, to General Milley's face, uh, basically um, patted him on the back and dressed down her colleagues. She said, you found yourself in your constitutionally prescribed role standing in the breach. And for any member of this committee, for any American to question your loyalty to our nation, to question your understanding of our constitution, your loyalty to our constitution, your recognition and understanding of the civilian chain of command is despicable. I want to apologize for those members of this committee who've done so. And I want to thank you for standing in the breach when so many, including many in this room, have failed to do so. Cheney received, you know, a lot of criticism from people who saw her 60 Minutes interview, for example, recently, and have said she always backed Trump until January 6th. She knew he was unfit, but she backed him anyway. But since January 6th, um, she has been so exemplary in her courage and her willingness to throw her career away, to do what's right. Uh, and she's doubling down. And I thought what she did yesterday was really remarkable. Couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, I lost sound for you at the very beginning. I don't know if you mentioned, but one of the things that she said to her colleagues was that they 
had voted against creating a January 6th commission and, you know, were, were complicit in trying to minimize and cover up this this crime. And then they had the nerve to criticize Millie. Uh, yeah, it was was wonderful. Damon Linker. Um, my uh, choice of the week for a highlight sort of loops back thematically to uh, Bill's remarks uh, about the Kagan piece and the the way that uh, we can sometimes be limited by uh, or the inability of our imaginations to envision a certain kind of horrible future. Uh, and Bill, you know, made reference to Jews in Nazi Germany in the 1930s who couldn't really envision how terrible things were going to get. In the spirit of that, I actually want to point to a column in the New York Times this week by Ross Douthat's um, colleague, Jamel Bowie, uh, has a piece titled, We Underestimated Trump Before It Didn't Go Well. But that doesn't really capture what the piece uh, says. The, the title, though, I think does indicate that it is, in a way, a response to Ross and his skepticism, as my comments were as well. Um, but this piece is very valuable because, it, it as Bowie's uh, columns often are, it's very historically informed. And all he really does is go back to the uh, decades and years months and days leading up to the outbreak of the Civil War and just show how really nobody really thought that we were going to go into a civil war in this country. Yes, people talked about it. People worried about secession for years. It was always debated. But people didn't really think, oh, yeah, South Carolina is really upset about Lincoln's victory, but they're not really going to go through with it. Similarly, these other states that are now saying they're with South Carolina, they're not really going to leave the Union. And then when they moved to do it, well, that's not really going to lead us to go to war with each other, right? And of course, does that prove that, you know, the people, you know, if there were there's someone running around in late 1860 saying, we're on the verge of this cataclysm here, they're not proven correct by trying to be a prophet because some contingency could have intervened and led it to go down another direction and it might not have happened. And similarly, we don't know that we're on the edge of a precipice with Trump. But the fact is that we are hampered in our ability to plan for and think about it by the fact that it is, as the statisticians say, a tail end event still. It probably won't happen that things get really bad, but it might. And the very fact that we can't imagine it happening should not be a reason to dismiss the possibility that it could because it could. So again, I think Bowie's column is very good for trying to get your mind to sort of uh, think itself out of uh, a little bit of complacency that I think too many of us uh, fall into. Thanks, Damon. Um, I, I would just also quickly add to that, that some of the commentary that I've seen has said, you know, that the number of people who say that they are willing to commit violence is very small. And, um, and, and my response to that is, that's always the case in pre-revolutionary moments. It's always just a few. But if you've got enough people who are willing to do it, the, 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 the broad middle that doesn't want to get involved or whatever can can be overcome. 
Oh, absolutely. And also, of course, uh, you know, it's not as if anyone's envisioning like 330 million Americans attacking one another. Right. I mean, all you need is say the, you know, 5% most committed Republicans or Trump supporters to take up arms. Uh, In the scheme of the country as a whole, that doesn't sound like much, but we're a big country. That's millions of people. Exactly. Okay, Bill Galston. Well, uh, I'm going to put two highlights or lowlights on the table. Uh, But first, apropos of Liz Cheney's rebuke of her colleagues, uh, I think it would be churlish of me to point out that there was quite a bit of criticism of of General Milley on this program not too long ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know who you are. Uh, and uh, I, I do think that events have really framed, uh, you know, the, you know, the comments in the Woodward Costa book in, in a very different way. Uh, but here are my two lowlights, which I believe are two important threats to the Biden administration. First of all, the panel of three generals made it very, very clear that contrary to the explicit statement of the president, he did receive lots of advice about the consequences of withdrawing uh, every American troop from Afghanistan, and he chose to disregard it and owns the consequences of that disregard, and it is not good Uh, for the standing of someone who is regarded uh, or has been regarded as honorable uh, to leave that contradiction between his record and the public record unresolved. Second, more obscurely, I don't usually take much note of statements of the Panamanian foreign minister (laughs) But yesterday, the Panamanian foreign minister warned that another 60,000 Haitian refugees are headed north from Central and South America towards Mexico and the southern border of the United States. I see no evidence that the Biden administration is organizing itself uh, to deal with what is, I think, a genuine emergency at the southern border, uh, they appear to be hoping that it will go away. It won't. Okay. Uh, Bill, let me just respond um, to the first point you made, and that is there's been a little bit of um, confusion in the discussion about Milley and and the uh, general's advice, with some people saying that um, that the idea was to keep 2,500 troops. And um, I think the generals were clear, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that that nobody said that. They didn't say that you could keep that small of a force um, in in the country and keep it stable. It would have, they said, we would have had to increase it, especially after the Trump-Doha agreement. We would have had to increase it or we would have been at war with uh, the Taliban right away. Um, so, you know, it wasn't as if the choice was just keep 2,500 guys there or not. It, it would have had to have been a much more, a much more beefed up force. So, 
that's that's worth um, that's worth noting. Um, all right, I uh, would like to depart from my usual um, pattern of recommending things, that, you know, our journalism that I want to promote or criticize and and praise a book that I'm very late to reading. It was published in 2005, but it's one of the finest pieces of American history writing that I've ever had the pleasure to read. It is Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. And it is just, I think it's a masterpiece. I, I, I loved Lincoln before reading this book. Now I am completely in love with Lincoln and um, just in awe of of him in in every way, not just his political genius, but his decency as a human being and uh, uh, just incredible uh, ability to um, understand other people and um, and you know the, there's there's one scene just to give you a sense of his humanity where she describes how um, you know he was constantly being besieged by office seekers and favor seekers of various kinds. It's hard to imagine now, but they would wander right into the White House and stop him, you know, as he was on his way to get some lunch and you know ask him for favors and things. And uh, his aides tried to limit his exposure to this kind of thing, but but he would, and eventually he did. And second second term, which was barely much but anyway uh, he he felt like he had to listen to these people and um but at one point he was up at the soldier's home and he was just really exhausted and somebody approached him and said that his wife had died and this was a soldier his wife had died and he wanted permission to have her buried and she needed to get across the lines or something he needed a pass and lincoln was very short with him and said you know am i to have no peace and quiet you know or something like that Okay. The next morning, this soldier wakes up. There's a knock on the door of his hotel room downtown. It's the president. He has come to apologize for his behavior the night before and to offer to help in any way he can. Just amazing. Um, so Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin, fantastic book. All right. Um, we are... Um, Delighted that you all are listening. It seems that I have not been doing enough begging, so I'm going to do some now. Apparently, it's really important that if you like this podcast, you rate and review us on iTunes. It's not just that you know we like to read nice comments. No, no, no. It's important for the algorithms that the Apple people use for um, determining whether we get more exposure and promotion and so forth and on lists, um, it, the more reviews we get, five-star reviews, of course. Um, so if you would be kind enough to do that, if you like this podcast, that we would really appreciate it. Um, I can be reached at Mona Charon at the bulwark.com. I read all of the mail. I don't always get a chance to respond, but I frequently do as some of those of you who've written can attest. And so thank you all for listening. Thank you, AB, for joining us. We will return next week as every week. <laughs>